Hello, and welcome to the never-ending pandemic edition of Political Traction. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith. The hammer is dropping across the country as one-day COVID-19 cases hit a record high in provinces like Ontario and BC. We're well into wave three, and Canadians have gone from scared to frustrated to straight-up angry. But with vaccines on the way, they can't come soon enough. So as Quebec brings in tougher curfews, Ontario and BC trip emergency breaks, what does this mean for the politicians? How are the public skirmishes with medical officers and small businesses playing? What will it take to get us through this pandemic? To give us her take, I'm joined by friend of the podcast, Global Mail reporter, Laura Stone. This is Political Traction. Okay, uh, thank you, Laura, for coming back on the podcast. I think the last time we had you on was November. So before we jump in, uh, just how have you been doing in the last few months? How are things going <laughs> And I guess it's Burlington, right, is where you're coming to us from? That's right, straight from Halton region. Um, <laughs> thanks so much for having me back. I, I honestly feel I, I have no sense of time. I know that I was on the podcast um, a few months ago, but I had no idea it was November. It feels like so long ago. Time is passing, I'm sure, for you in such uh, weird ways right now. So I'm I'm feeling incredibly lucky, and I know that I'm very privilege to, to do what I do and, and to, to be able to work from home and to have a, a very supportive workplace. So in that sense, I'm doing well, but uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been tough to watch for sure. And I know so many people are struggling and hurting right now. So that's been hard, but I'm good. I just have no sense of time anymore. And I would, I would remiss if I did not um, plug a very good deed that you did, which is you guys have adopted um, a rescue dog uh, through the same rescue group that I do volunteer work and adopted mine. So you have a new, new addition to your family, right? We do, Ruby Sue. So thank you so much for hooking us <laughs> up with Fetch and Release. <laughs> she's our Southern Belle. We got her in December. She's a fantastic dog. Um, she's brought us so much joy and, and gives us a reason to get outside and, and yeah. um, our it's kids amazing. love her and she's you great because of the dog like sometimes I guess you have kids so you probably have more reasons to leave but like the dog I'm like I guess I should go outside the poor thing has to go for a walk yeah so. exactly it's just rain or shine you got to get out there so no she's been she's been fantastic we love her so much all right so we Laura and I were on the agenda earlier this week and I was like I really like that conversation I would like to have it on the podcast <laughs> so here we are um and it Kick it off. I'm going to give a quote actually from uh, a, a you know a colleague of yours around Queens Park, Chris Selly, who said, "Quote across the country, the public health hammer is coming down." Um, so we've had BC shut indoor dining, group fitness classes, and limit religious services. Alberta has shut down restaurants and gyms. Um, they've also notably, if people have been watching this week, uh, the Grace Life Church, which has been uh, a big point of controversy is they have um, eschewed all limits on masking, on indoor stuff, has been boarded up with weird fencing, which doesn't seem that sturdy, but here we are. Um, Quebec's also shut down gyms, limited capacities in red zones, banned outdoor gatherings um, in red zones, and continues to maintain a curfew, which I forgot about, and I would be very upset if I had an 8 p.m. curfew. Um, <laughs> in Ontario, we had a whole host of things come out this week, including a new stay-at-home order. Um, so I guess just to, before we kick into like the real specifics, just curious, Laura, on, on your take on kind of the mood in the country and, and sort of these, these new or these return to measures we haven't seen since the second wave. Well, I think it's it's really important to note that it's happening across the country. And I think we get very Ontario centric here and, and Toronto centric when we talk about what's happening 
here and uh, people forget sometimes that this is what provinces across the country, save for the Atlantic region, which is, is its own beast, yeah. uh, are are going through. So it's it's you know the 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 provinces have various ways of doing with that and dealing with that, and some have stricter measures than others. But in general, there is a third wave and there is a resurgence of cases and concerns over hospitalizations, which is prompting the governments to reissue these restrictions at a time when. People are really tired of it, and uh, they want this to be over. and And I think there was uh, some hope that we would get we wouldn't be at this point in the spring of 2021. So they're dealing with which with a much more malaised public uh, mood, I think, um, than than they would have been even back in December and January. And that's that's the biggest challenge for the governments right now. Yeah, and I think someone described it as the first wave we were scared, the second wave we were frustrated, the third wave people are just like pissed like just really like <laughs> yeah that like, was robin urbach i think from, yeah. from our paper which is totally which is totally right right like on the weekend when i kind of got wins i was i was like i was in a rage and then i'm like okay and i was still in a rage probably when i was on the agenda a little bit and then i calmed down and i was like <laughs> i need to look at what is um it's happening across the province i'm like okay it's not just ontario although you can argue the the, the weather vein moves between you know reopening patios telling telling personal care businesses they can open and close um I think has been particularly impactful and hurtful here. But uh, but one of the things I wanted to actually talk to you about specifically was also across the country, there's been a struggle between kind of the medical establishment and elected officials um, in that, you know, we see the medical establishment kind of loudly signaling, this is a problem, this wave is coming, we need to lock down, we need to do more, like some are saying we need to close schools. And there's political officials who are both trying to weigh their constituencies, which is a really tough thing for, for example, a um, I think Premier Ford in particular, whose you know, voters particularly are rural and don't have quite the many impacts of COVID as you would say in an urban setting, other than like some regions like Thunder Bay and stuff. Right. Um, and you could argue Legault a little bit in Quebec, uh, you know, who are kind of balance economic people's anger versus the medical establishment. So from your perspective, what's going on between that push and pull between medical officials and politicians? And how has that evolved over the course of this pandemic? Well, I think that's where it is strongest in Ontario. I think we see a lot more conflict publicly between the medical establishment and the elected officials, even though, for instance, if you look at British Columbia, their situation is very much not good right now, but you don't have the same kind of of anger and outcry over uh, uh, Bonnie Henry's role, for instance, as you would here in Ontario with Dr. Williams. So I think there's a there's a personality element to this uh, in terms of Premier Ford being a, more of a polarizing figure in terms of our medical officer of health not being as great of a, as a, of a communicator as others. Um, but I think you're seeing that growing louder and louder and, and some of these voices growing increasingly emboldened and really having an impact on on the government's policy. And you talked about, uh, you know, just a few weeks ago, the government was promising haircuts and and uh, and personal care services like nails and tattoos to, to people in Toronto. People were booking appointments. And then now a couple of weeks later, it's a complete 180 and we're at, under a stay at home order and our hospitals are overflowing. So um, I do think there's a manic pace to the changes that are being made here that is really angering people on the ground from all sides, from small business to this to the medical community, to doctors, uh, you know, to the general public, to teachers, to p- parents. So I think that that 
that kind of um, that conflict um, between the medical community and, and the, the, the elected class, I think, is really reaching ahead right now, particularly in this province. And, you know, you rightly point out some medical officers like Henshaw are a lot more savvy, media savvy, or more, I think, you know, media friendly or public communications friendly. But, you know, from, from the start, elected officials have deferred to medical doctors, right, or elevated them. Sometimes they've said, you know, it's not me, my decision, it's I, I just listen to the experts. So you have Henshaw, who's got a shoe named after her. I mean, her household name now, Davila has an entire Twitter account about her scarves. And <laughs> I think the legacy of this is there was actually a research study in January that the Canadian's level of trust for medical doctors and scientists are the most trusted 75%. Medical officers of health are 63 and the prime ministers and premiers are down in the lower 30s. So is this like a problem of their own making and that they've kind of created, they've elevated the medical, rightfully so, right? Like we should be hearing from them, but now they can't even there's no kind of give and take there, particularly in Ontario, and that if they don't, if the medical officers don't like what's happening, all they have to do is speak publicly about it, and then the governments have no choice. Yeah, I mean, they've, they've set the standard, Premier Ford has set the standard here where he says he's listening to medical professionals or listening to Dr. Williams, although there's a debate about that too, uh, in terms of, of some of the, the manic decisions that the government has made, who is really recommending reopening indoor dining to to 100 people uh, just a few weeks ago. <laughs> was that pushed by the cabinet and then approved by Williams? I mean, I, I don't think anyone believes that Williams came up with that on his own. But um, yeah, I mean, certainly at the start of this pandemic, no one knew what was going on, right? And we have these public health officials who really have been operating in the background since SARS. Um, and we don't, it's not like they're public figures. We don't usually hear from them. And all of a sudden they're elevated to um, to a status that uh, most people are, are are not familiar with because they're out there talking about this this new virus. Uh, the science has changed throughout this. The public health guidance has changed throughout this. It is evolving. And I think the politicians recognize that while the public is looking to them for guidance, they're also looking and even more so to to the scientists and to the doctors. And I don't think, um, you know, regardless of, of maybe some of the problems that this has created for Premier Ford, I don't think the public would have ever accepted him making decisions uh, without their input and public advice. I think that is craved by most of the general public. And I think most of the general public uh, does support restrictions. Uh, although, you know, I guess that's, that could be somewhat changing in terms of, of how strict they are and, and what's happening within the business community. But I think broadly speaking, it's supported and people would rather have these decisions uh, being made or being given, the, the advice being given by the medical community, not someone like Doug Ford, who has no background in, in science or medicine. And you're on the ground in Queens Park, right? So we knew last I guess, was it the, this week, last week, I'm kind of like time really is a, a new flexible, but we like, you know, there's been robust, we, like we've got weeks of like pretty robust cabinet debates around sort of the stay at home or in the first round, the second round. My understanding was there was pretty broad acceptance that things are not, you know, things are, it's, it's bad out there. And then today, just as we record this, um, we've had the highest case counts in the history of the pandemic today, over 4,000 4, something um, in, in Ontario. So what's, what is the mood like at Queen's Park? I mean, I, I don't know if how much you're in the halls, but you're talking about a lot of folks like what is the kind of feeling the mood amongst the government amongst opposition what are people saying yeah I'm remotely in touch with people but I'm still staying at home um so I do agree I think there there was um 
I think we've heard throughout this that there there has been a lot of debate uh, within within cabinet and caucus over restrictions. We've seen um, the government lose an MPP over this, Roman Baber, who's come out really strongly against lockdowns. And we know that there's certainly a divide between the rural members or uh, and the urban ones or the ones where there's very few or limited cases to uh, an MPP from Toronto, for instance. They're just dealing with a different reality. I think where this is different is they the cabinet was briefed on on the situation in hospitals and the constraints that would impact them all over the province, regardless of where they're from. And um, even in the north, while the the hospitals announced that they're postponing elective and non-urgent surgeries in the southern areas, this this will have a ripple effect on on capacity issues in the north and transferring. So I do think the 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 latest stats on hospitalizations were very sobering. And I think um, I think that's why there was kind of a broader acceptance of, of the need to go back to the stay at home order, even though no one likes it, no one wants to do it. Uh, I think that you're what you're seeing the numbers play out right now in public. I don't think I don't think there would have really been any other option for them to 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 tighten up restrictions. I don't think the public would have accepted anything other than that. There has been one debate that I think played out particularly quite visibly here in Ontario and is actually playing out in other jurisdictions across the country around it's around school closures, right? So in Ontario, we had, I think, a very public fight um, between sort of or fight or disagreement or whatever you want to say between select chief medical officers in, in certain regions in Toronto and Peel and politicians both you know, provincially and actually the provincial medical officers of health versus sort of the local mayors saying, is it safe or not to, to open or close schools? Um, and what they actually did was use something called Section 22, which has existed in Ontario since 1983, I now know, and was interestingly used with significant controversy around the AIDS crisis back in the 80s, written a lot in your own paper, um, as I read about. So this isn't a new power, and there's something similar to that in provinces across the country. Now, when we first had this pandemic outbreak happen, a lot of them like including like Davila here in Toronto was like very reluctant to use it. Right. We haven't, these have not been tested in this kind of way. Um, you know, and now all of a sudden we see them being sort of thrown around a lot more substantially um, to while at the same time, the premier, the Ontario chief medical officer of health and uh, the education minister saying schools are safe. We're fine. The chief medical officer's health, even as I explain, this sounds insane. Municipally, are saying, no, it's not. Um, and to me, I like. I actually think the the medical officers rightfully should be speaking loudly and you know, putting out open letters and doing whatever, like doing that. I think that's important for them to be where they feel is appropriate. I remain uncomfortable with the idea that um, medical officers can supersede elected officials with stuff like this because um, I think it just contributes to a ton of discontent and confusion in the public, and it scares parents. Um, we've also seen a lot of you know chio and all the kinds of say kids should be in school so what what did you make of that whole dust up over this last week um and is there any discussion around this or is it sort of we've already moved on because you know hospitals are closing and you know that was a controversy two days ago no i think it's still very very relevant and and um and very controversial and I think that's because there are so many parents and students in this province and this affects people this it, there's nothing um, more affecting than than your kids going to school and having to keep them home or keeping on sending them to 
school. Um, so I, I do think this matters. And I think um, it, it was really controversial to see what uh, Peel and Tr Toronto did in, in closing their schools. And um, and it's a very divisive, divisive debate here. Um, I, I, th I see, I get so much reaction and uh, commentary from people on anything that education minister Stephen Lecce does. It's just, it's, it's, he's a lightning bolt for uh, various views. I think the government is so tied to this idea of keeping schools open for all of the reasons that you mentioned. Um, and uh, in particular, the fact that Dr. Williams says they're safe and also the effects on kids and closing them and the effects on on lower income families that can't just fire up six laptops in their home and, and just do online school while their parents work from home. That's not how everyone's situation is. Um, so uh, on the flip side of that, of course, I don't think the medical officers took joy in closing the schools. I don't think they wanted to, but they, they clearly felt the community spread was at a, a dangerous level that it, it really could have spiraled out of control. So um, I agree with you that the medical officers have been more emboldened now to, to use these powers, whereas at the beginning of the pandemic, um, there was a game of chicken with the province and the local officers over who would act first. I think the officers have just decided that they are going to use the powers that they have. Um, and I think they feel broadly supported by certainly the medical community in order to do that. So I, I agree. I think there'll be a, a fascinating post-mortem on this uh, as to what decisions were the right ones at the right time and the effects on society in making these pretty drastic calls like closing schools. Yeah, and I, I think I like my little public service. I actually hope I hope we do. And we may end up at the space where we think Section 22 is appropriate to keep. Right. But I, I do think I think it behooves us once we get on the other side of this, which hopefully will be by the fall <laughs> um, <laughs> to to think through what are the mechanisms? How are these decisions made? I mean, like, for example, for in Alberta, in Alberta, the UPC voted down an NDP motion. Um, to make the provincial chief medical officer health independent from the legislative assembly. So I think like those are starting or have been happening or will be happening. But I think it's good for all of us to kind of, we have to, th I, I think in a crisis, you got to move forward. But I do feel like it's important for us to think about how we're governed. And I don't think that's yeah. a democratic conversation to have. And, and I think Ontario is unique in that we have a chief medical officer, but we also have 34. And yes. Dr. Williams it's is insane. not in charge of them. He, they're all sort of equal. They don't, they don't, they don't report to him in the sense that he can overrule their decisions. So I think that, you know, uh, um, a, a deeper look at uh, how our public health system works, and I know the government has tried to do this and they've been criticized for this in, in terms of um, you know, cuts made and, and them trying to um, synthesize the system. But Ontario has a very disparate public health system where some of the other provinces are not dealing with that degree uh, um, of, of, of local kind of decision-making process. So last question before I move to the rapid fire round. Um, we're, I think we're, you know, there's a, what is it a year from now there'll be an election? Is that, am I getting that right? Or <laughs> June, right? yeah, June, 2022, that's right. Yeah, okay, that's okay. So that's what I was saying, I'm like, really? It's just a year away? So we're a year from an election. Do you think any of this is gonna matter in a year from now? Do you think any of this sticks? Or do you think it'll be a whole other conversation around then? I think it certainly matters. Like I think this, this pandemic is the defining, um, moment of, of Premier Ford's time in office, right? And um, and I, I think, yes, hopefully we'll be on the other side of it. And that's probably why they don't want to call an early election, even though polling numbers are quite good. Um, you know, people are not in 
people are not really in a generous mood in terms of um, of how they're feeling about the current COVID situation. So um, I do think it matters, but I think that the timing is fortuitous for the government in that we are expected to be on the other side of it by, by next June. And um, as difficult as it's been, and uh, as controversial as it's been, they, they may tend to reward the party that had to make these difficult decisions. Um, I don't wanna predict what's going to happen. I'm just looking at what the numbers say right now, even though the premier's uh, personal approval rating, ratings are falling um, it, uh, compared to what it was like at the beginning of the pandemic. So I think it also depends on their moves uh, post-pandemic. What are they going to do to rebuild the trust with the business community? How are they going to invest in public health and some preventative measures to ensure this doesn't happen again? Um, so there has to be a rebuilding phase, I think, which will also play into, into an election campaign. Um, but I think the pandemic has certainly been like the hallmark of this, of this premier's political career. Okay, we're gonna leave it there and move to the rapid fire round. Um, first up, uh, this is where Laura, as you know, I will throw out stuff to you and you say the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. First, Prince Philip, who passed away uh, this morning. I will say I opened my phone because I was doing more in the morning and saw a new story, Prince Philip has passed and I gasped very loudly and my dog jumped up because he thought something was <laughs> wrong. So what do you make, what, what are your, what's your take on the, the passing of Prince Philip? I think Canadians care. I think that Canadians feel very tied to the royal family. You know, uh, even though there's some debate over over whether we should or not, I think people feel like it's um, a familiar, uh, not like person to them, but a, a familiar historical figure. So it's a piece of history is gone. I guess I would say I don't think they have the same emotional ties to Prince Philip that they would if the Queen passed away, for instance. Yeah. Uh, but I think they kind of do feel like, oh, that's part of our country and our country's heritage when they when they heard that news. Um, I don't. Did you see the controversy over Jill Biden's tights? I actually did, Amanda. I've just had my head 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 in COVID. What happened? So she so. She she wore um, like they're calling them fishnets, but they're sort of like a you know like a web right. design with with ankle boots and like a cool little leather jacket. She looked great, and then the U.S. world ex like U.S. media exploded and well, this is inappropriate and how could she wear fishnet tights and blah blah blah. So I just I you know you watch politicians. I work with politicians who get criticized for wearing all kinds of things. Um, but I was curious of your take on that. I think it I think it was particularly unfair. But oh, I've checked them out. Oh, I, I say, yeah. I say, go Jill Biden. Let's not go there. Like this <laughs> is not relevant at all. And um, uh, I just, I think we're beyond commenting on 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 women or men's appearance at this stage. It's just this is just not important. Plus, it looks great. She is. She looks fab. Not that we should be talking about it, but yeah, she absolutely looks fab. <laughs> um, Clubhouse, are you are you a member? Have you 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 jumped on this bandwagon yet? I have not because I feel like I don't I don't need like another kind of like social media chat yeah. group in my life. Um, and I've even kind of tried to take a step back from Twitter, like on the weekends, I sort I'm just trying not to engage that much. And not that I'm not paying attention or if something with news broke, I wouldn't weigh in. But I, I actually find it like it's 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 really um, just divisive and toxic right now. And I just I'm trying to take a step back as I just it's too much. Yeah, so I'm on it. Um, I kind of I don't mind it. It's sort of like if podcasting and radio had a baby, <laughs> but but uh, and because people are talking to each other, it seems to be less aggressive than Twitter. But I'm not sure. That's cool. If it's got staying power, so we we will see. But I 
Can you be anonymous on it? Like, are there anonymous voices or does everyone have to identify? Themselves? I mean, you, you can call yourself like um, Ruby Sue's mom if you wanted and like have a photo of her. <laughs> you can do that. Can okay, maybe I'll do that. And we just talk about dog stuff. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Laura, for coming on as always. And uh, uh, don't work too hard and hope you enjoy your walks with the pup. Thanks so much, Amanda. Have a great weekend as much as you can. Political Traction is powered by Navigator, Canada's leading high-stakes public affairs firm. Our show is produced by John Gardner, Simon Brudden, Kimberly Drapeck, Hunter Nifton, and Nico Waltonbury. A very special thank you goes out to this week's guest, Laura Stone. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate us online wherever you find your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at TractionPolly. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith. We'll see you next Friday.